My name is Mandy Jackson Beverly, and I'm a bibliophile. Welcome to the bookshop. Located in the heart of historic downtown Salisbury, North Carolina, is South Main Book Company. The shop carries a carefully curated selection of locally authored titles, new books, literary memorabilia, and keepsakes. Today, I'm chatting with owner Alyssa Redmond. Hi, Alyssa, and welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. Alyssa, you've had an interesting career. Before becoming the owner of South Main Book Company in Salisbury, North Carolina, you volunteered with the Peace Corps. Next, you worked with the U.S. State Department and lived in New Orleans, Afghanistan, India, Hong Kong, and Bolivia. So, what was the impetus behind the change in job and moving from Bolivia to North Carolina? Yeah, I didn't have too much choice in the leaving of Bolivia piece. Um, I was a diplomat stationed in Bolivia. We'd arrived in La Paz about four months before we were evacuated uh, because of political instability. And coming to America less than a year before the presidential election, it just felt like instability on top of instability for quite a long time. Um, (laughs) And while you're in Bolivia, you had your daughter with you. um, We were evacuated because my daughter, uh, who was four at the time, Um, they were telling all uh, family members of people working in the embassy that they had to leave. And I'm a single mother. I wasn't going to send her to be with someone else. Um, We had to leave and um, they would have put me at a desk in DC, um, which is where we had just come from. And I'd been in Spanish class and just, it didn't feel right. I didn't want to go back. Um, It was a, a little bit violent leaving Bolivia Uh, And I had been in India and Afghanistan and other places as a single person without children. uh, And it it just really shocked me when I arrived in Bolivia and then things turned pear-shaped so quickly. So I just felt like I needed a break. I needed to give my daughter sidewalks and stability. And so I started thinking about buying a house in the Charlotte area to be near my brother. And one thing led to another, and I randomly Googled bookstores for sale near Charlotte, North Carolina. And lo and behold, there was a bookstore in Salisbury for sale. And it was the most beautiful bookstore that has ever been in existence. And so I, uh, we got evacuated. I flew to my brother's house, bought a car that day, uh, drove immediately to Salisbury, which I had never visited before, and took one look at the bookstore, bought an elephant and piggy book off the rack, Uh, with my daughter and told the owner that I would be in touch with her momentarily. (laughs) Um, And were bookshops something that you were looking at or does this one just come up and you just had this kind of instant gut reaction that this is what you wanted to do? It really mattered. It had not been at all. It, it really just popped in my head. I started thinking, oh, if I'm going to buy a house, maybe I'll work part-time in like a Barnes and Noble or something just to have some money coming in. And part of the reason that I needed to be in a stable location was because I was adopting my daughter's older sister from Hong Kong. And so I needed to, I knew I needed to be someplace for probably a couple of years. And so I needed to have some source of income ideally, but I had enough in savings that I wasn't 
I, I, I'd been preparing for the adoption um, and preparing for worst case scenarios. And so it, it all just kind of came together in this funny moment where I thought, oh, I wonder if there's a bookstore for sale. Oh, there is one for sale. Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> and I can afford it. And, and then I started, I mean, then I went through the whole rabbit hole of like, is it feasible and sustainable and economically responsible to buy a bookstore in this day and age, which I think every bookstore owner goes through that process. If they're, if they're buying right now, maybe if it was 30 years ago, it was a very different process, but I mean, we all know what Amazon is. I mean, that's not, you know, it's not a secret. And so a lot of people in my family thought I was crazy. But I did, I crunched some of the numbers and I looked around and I, I started going to other bookstores and talking to the owners. Uh, and it just seemed like it, it could work. I wasn't sure that it would be a slam dunk. I didn't know if I would be a good bookseller. Um, my customer service is less than ideal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'll just put that right out there. And I don't think anybody is like, people that know me know that. <laughs> But I hire good people and um, and I really I love the book buying aspect. Um, and I love researching and reading, you know, what are the good books that are out there uh, and being able to point people towards some more obscure things that have brought me joy. And, and I do. I love the conversations I have in the store. Um, and it's it's a great spot where um, especially last summer and into the fall, we're not one political affiliation or the other, you know, I mean, there's everybody who kind of runs a spectrum in my town and in the County. Uh, and I have just had the most interesting conversations with people and um, learned a lot about what they think it means to be an American and really, you know, change some of my perceptions of what America is and what it's capable of. And um, so as a diplomat, that has all been fascinating, kind of being a diplomat at home. I bet it was. And what year was it that you arrived back in the States? Was it 2019? Yes. So that was during the previous administration. How was it coming back? How did you feel? Well, there's so many layers to that question, um, because my daughters are Asian. And so that's a constant fear that runs through my head. And we live in a somewhat diverse, but not terribly diverse county. Uh, and where are they going to fit in in schools now that schools are reopening? But And then buying the bookstore right before the pandemic hit and, and going through all of that. Yeah. The pandemic oddly kind of solidified my loyalty to the store, knowing how loyal our community is to the store and being able to ride that out with everyone. And I never had to close my doors. Gosh, how did that happen? Yeah, I was designated as a um, educational materials provider by the state. Um, never had to close for even a day. And we stayed open. People could come in and browse. And there was a level of stress there that I kind of recognized at the time, but didn't really because I was exposed to whoever walked in the door. Um, and my family was exposed to that. And um, some people were incredibly respectful of the fact that I was open and felt that that was a great service to the community. And other people, you know, had the we had the constant argument of, you know, you have to wear a mask if you come inside. I, I mean, all of that has just been fascinating. And now that I'm on the other side of that and have ridden all of that out, 
I feel like I really accomplished something being able to stay open. I'm really proud of it. But I also recognize how fortunate I was. Um, Our store had a really great year last year financially. And I know that so many other stores, just by virtue of of where they were or, you know, what their health situations were, just how lucky that was to be able to come out on the other side of it. And I lost a few customers because of COVID and that was terribly sad. And I lost, you know, I lost people in my life too. Um, but so many others had it so much worse. And so having owned the store for about a year and a half and being kind of on the other side of COVID and my daughter's, my second daughter has come. I picked her up from Hong Kong in December of last year. So flew during the pandemic. That's a long flight at any time. But how was it with the restrictions? It was a nightmare. <laughs> I've like I've, I've taken so many trips in my life, but that was, I mean, there's nothing that can compare to that one by any stretch. Um, but now that I'm on the other side of that and my daughters are treating each other like regular sisters, not arguing constantly because one is new to the house and they are their biological sister. So to see them, you know, really connecting with one another and just seeing how the bookstore fills all of the gaps that I needed it to fill in my life. I mean, I just, I lucked out in a thousand different ways. So I'm just, I'm grateful to the store and I'm grateful to my community and I'm really happy. (laughs) I'd say you've earned it. And by the way, thank you for your service to the United States. Oh, thank you. That's really cute. Now, South Main Book Company comprises 3,000 square feet of retail space with mezzanine, outdoor patio, and basement seating areas for large or intimate musical events. In an article in the Salisbury Post dated January 5th, 2021, you stated the store has done well this year, which is something you mentioned earlier. Do you think that was because you're able to stay open, which is not the way it was for most, you know, indie bookshops? Or did you also do a lot of online sales? Uh, I have a bookshop um, affiliate site. Is that with bookshop.org? Yeah. And I was a part of that from the very beginning. That was definitely helpful, but it, I mean, that comprises an extra day's sales maybe um, at the end of the month. Um, so it's it's helpful. Prior to my ownership of the store, there really wasn't an online um, sales component. So, and people were people were calling and buying gift cards and and doing all of that. So there was definitely all of those pieces. But I would definitely say that in person sales were what kept us going, and. A lot of that came from a number of very specific instances, too. Um, There's a Confederate monument that was right around the corner from my store. And there was that was a huge debate over the summer last year. Would the monument be moved or not? And city council was was weighing it for several weeks of open debate. And there there showed up on social media on Facebook one day, a list of stores to boycott because they were in favor of moving the monument. And who knows who created this list? Who knows what their criteria were? I had just moved to town. So I wasn't out there vocally expressing an opinion one way or the other. But once that list came out, 
um, people flooded the store to prove they weren't racist. (laughs) And so, and that led me to then pivot and say, you know what, if somebody is going to come at me about this monument, then I will be vocal about it. And I will say that this store is anti-racist. We stock anti-racist materials and we're now going to start putting them in all the little free libraries in our county. And that led to a GoFundMe. People just, I mean, people were mailing me money. Like it was just, it was incredible. People were just mailing cash to the store saying, we love what you're doing. Keep doing it. And so we had a huge bump in June and July when normally you would never have that, you know, in a normal year. And how many books do you think you donated? It was over $13,000 worth of books. Um, and I can't remember. I, I, it was definitely over a thousand books. That's great. Yeah. Another person stepped forward and gave us a bunch of money to do it again um, for science and math related materials. And so we're still kind of doing that in stages. My older daughter, um, when she first came back to America um, after the adoption, she and I were filling the libraries for a long time. And that was something that we could do together. Time well spent together. I'm sure that was precious. Now, are you talking about the little free library system all over America? In fact, I think it might be global now. Or is this a different organization? No, no, no. It's little free libraries. Yeah, the the little boxes. I love them. We have a couple in our neighborhood and they're dotted all over our town. Yeah, the idea came because I'd been reaching out to the school system because they were delivering food to kids on buses. And I said, hey, would you like some books to give them too? A lot of these kids, if they don't have food, they probably don't have books either. And it became a logistical nightmare. And they they suggested, hey, why don't you just fill the little libraries near the schools, the little free libraries, because there's one at every school. Presumably every kid is within a certain distance. And so that's where that started from. Well, well done. And thanks for giving back to the community. I'd love to hear about Salisbury and the area, the demographics, the geography. So can you tell us a little about the area, please? Sure. Yeah, it's a small town. Um, and the downtown area, my building was constructed well over 100, probably 150 years ago. Um, and we're right, we're right in the square. So there's two kind of main streets that that bisect the downtown area. And so we're right in that little um, area. And my store was the first original um, offshoot of, or it, it was the, it was called Phil's Shoes, but it that's now Rack Room Shoes. It's a pretty well-known um, shoe franchise <laughs> in America. Um, but it, it's just funny, the history of the store itself started as a shoe store. And it's one of the most beautiful buildings, um, just old creaky wood floors. And we have um, little uh, ladders that move on the shelves. And it's it's just idyllic in terms of what a bookstore could look like. Lots of white pictures in the, in this, from the ceiling and it's very high ceilings. Um, and the city itself. So we are right off of Interstate 85, which is a major road connecting basically New York to Miami. And we are right between Charlotte and Winston-Salem, Greensboro, not very far from Durham and Raleigh. So we're kind of, we're not in the middle of nowhere by any stretch, but we are, there's, there's not another bookstore within about 45 minutes to an hour's drive. And so just by luck of geography uh, and population, I am hitting an underserved area of 
um, of North Carolina um, that is very well read because we have four universities in town. We have a symphony, the Salisbury Symphony, and it's really great. What's the population of Salisbury? It's about 35,000 people. Well, I'm impressed they have their own symphony orchestra. There's a really vibrant art scene here. And so when I was doing my research into thinking like, what is this town? And um, there's there's so much philanthropy that goes on here too, because Food Lion is a major grocery store in North in, in America. Uh, it started in Salisbury. Um, a soft drink called Cheerwine started here. So there are a lot of people that um, hit it big um, for, for a very small town and decided to give a lot of their wealth back to their community. And so that is... It just runs very deep within our town. And what about green space? They're building a huge park right behind my store, one block away. It's going to be kind of a central park. And it, it's been entirely funded by private donations. So um, it, it's just such an interesting place to be. And it's, it's perfect for a small business owner. It sounds like a wonderful place to live. And during the pandemic, did you switch to virtual author events? Uh, I didn't really. I tried our um, our regional association, SEBA, the Southern Independent Bookstore Association. Great. Love them. Um, and they offered a lot of events that we could kind of partner with them to get larger authors um, to do events. And I just didn't get very many people to express interest. I had a handful of in-person signings um, last year by local authors, and we just tried to be really smart about it. I mean, I couldn't have more than 25 people in the store max and, and never really came anywhere close to that number, but tried to help people get the word out about their books when they were self-publishing or um, publishing um, with, a, with a house, but people... Yeah. Um, and I, I even had a couple of bigger ones. And so we just tried to do it in a, in a way, you know, if you don't want to be there and you can just pick it up signed, that's better. I can deliver it to your house, whatever. Um, but some people really wanted to get out of their house and see someone. And so we would, you know, set up a stand in the front of the store on the sidewalk and have people walk up sometimes or, you know, do whatever we could. So, um, yeah, we tried we tried to do what worked, but vir- virtual events just they didn't work for us. And the indie bookshop owners I've interviewed say they're super grateful to their local communities for their loyalty and support. What lies at the heart of the South Main Book Company customer base? And you've kind of answered this because you were talking about uh how it is such a large philanthropic community. But my goodness, four universities, that's a lot in such a small community. And I was wondering, do you sell more nonfiction or fiction? Mm, fiction's definitely stronger, but but we do have we have a lot of local history um, and a lot of Civil War history that sometimes um, moves. I would say that I mean our store has been in existence for over twenty years, and there are a lot of hopes for our downtown. It's it's one of the downtowns that I've visited that is not dying. Uh, and there are so many projects in the works uh, within two blocks of my building, and everyone wants to see our downtown survive. And there are so many people that understand the importance of shopping local 
that I think that message has just really resonated in our town. And I mean, we do have maybe some folks that are at a higher resource level than you would typically find in a town of our size. And so they definitely come out and support. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of, a lot of college students come in too and high schoolers and, and we just, we try to have a very diverse offering for everyone to feel welcome in, in the store. And it, it's, it's working out so far. <laughs> and with two little girls, I'm sure you have a pretty good children's section. Yeah, I've been trying really hard. I want to I want to be able to market us eventually as, you know, one of the best children's book providers in the South. That's a goal of mine and I've been moving towards that religiously. Unfortunately, my own daughters only like to read my little pony graphic novels, so <laughs> I'm working on their taste. <laughs> Alyssa, as long as they're reading, that's the most important part. And perhaps behind your back, they're actually scouring the bookshelves. <laughs> they, say, they say they do that, yes. <laughs> My guess is they do. Now, what is one book you'd like to see more people reading? Oh, my goodness. That's such a great question. I've never been asked that version of that question, and I love it. So in answer to your question, um, the book that I would recommend uh, more people read that I don't think, um, I don't think this book got the attention that I had hoped that it would, um, is See No Stranger by Valerie Kaur. And I think last, it came out last summer, right before the murder of George Floyd. And, um, I thought it was going to have a moment. And I think there were so many other books that had that moment. And so this one maybe got a little bit obscured, but she gave a talk several years ago and um, talked about her family's path through the immigration system to to create a life in America and and talks a lot in the book about the sort of life that she wants for her children. And I just I think her language is so moving. And I, I watch that video of hers with some regularity when I when I kind of lose hope. Um, because having worked in immigration uh, and and seeing where a lot of our news is going and where a lot of the books are that are out about what what people see for our future, it can sometimes feel a little bleak. And I feel like her book and also Dave Eggers, Dave Eggers did a children's book called Her Right Foot. Uh, and that talks about the history of Ellis Island and and what does it mean that the statue's right foot is raised and appears to be in movement. And the crux of the story is that the, the statue doesn't want to sit and wait for people to come to it. It wants to go out to see to help those come in. And, and it's it just like between her speech and her book and that children's book, which I used to keep on my desk as a diplomat. I mean, I would just be in tears every once in a while. <laughs> um, watching YouTube clips and reading children's books at my desk. <laughs> But I feel like you need things like that can, that can just very quickly bring you back to your focus. Because I think you can read very heavy, weighty, you know, tomes about what it means to be an American. George Packer's The Unwinding and his new book right now about the last best hope. I, I love where he's coming from and his perspective. But every once in a while, you just need that like sound bite. And I really get that from Dave Eggers. Uh, and her right foot, just to to remind me of what it means to be an American, what I'm trying to do with my own life, professionally and personally. And so those are those are some titles right there that they really in the gut. 
A few more books to add to my ever-increasing to-be-read list. <laughs> Now, I've been thinking about all the different things you've done with your life and the countries you've lived in and your daughters, and I was wondering if you've ever thought about writing a book of your own. I am in the middle of trying to write my first children's book, um, and that I've been working on for almost a year, and I'm, I've got maybe one page. Well, considering you've evacuated from a country... You recently started a new business. We've been in a pandemic and you adopted another daughter. I think you're doing pretty well. Trust me, a year is nothing. You just got to keep at it. I when I bought the store that was definitely in my in my thought process that I wanted to write. Um and I I think a lot of people with small children, especially mothers, can attest to the fact that you just you lose so much of your time and your headspace um when they're young and now my daughter my youngest daughter just turned six last week so i'm hoping that i am moving towards a space where i can write because i do i do want to and i don't know if it will be a memoir about adoption but i i have thought about that so there's there's a couple of things percolating well keep me posted <laughs> you and i have so much respect to people for people i and i i've worked with some of them who can have a full-time job, raise a family and then write books in, at four in the morning. And I just think, wow, you are incredible. I will be asleep until my children are like hitting me with fried bacon. <laughs> Telling me to buy it. If you get a chance, listen to episode 49 of the Bookshop podcast. I interviewed the author Katie Crouch, whose book Embassy Wife has just come out recently. Great book, by the way. Her husband is author Peter Orner, and she was talking about what it's been like trying to write books while she has two children and is a full-time teacher. It's just really funny, and I think it might give you some perspective on what it's like trying to write, work, and be a mother. Elisa, thank you so much for taking time out and coming on the show. It's been lovely chatting with you. Oh, thank you, Mandy. This has been a joy. I've really enjoyed it. So, thank you for your time. Producing a podcast takes a lot of work, from researching guests, editing interviews, producing the show, and marketing. If you're enjoying the Bookshop podcast, and I sure hope you are, here are a few ways you can support the ongoing episodes. You can subscribe to the show, leave a review, and share the link with family and friends and on social media. You can also support me by going to the bookshoppodcast.buzzsprout.com. Click on the small orange heart at the top right-hand corner of the page and donate using PayPal. Thanks in advance. Now, on with the second half of the show. Lucinda Clark began PRA publishing in 2002 with the mission of giving diverse voices in literature a chance to shine. True to this mission, PRA Publishing looks to publish everything from non-fiction, fiction, translations, and especially poetry. Lucinda founded and heads up Poetry Matters Project, an organization that strives to reawaken our society's awareness and appreciation of poetry. Hi Lucinda, and welcome to the show. Hi Mandy, thanks for having me. It's lovely to have you here. Now, you were born in Philadelphia and left at age 17 to live and study in New Orleans. What did you study and how did your time there influence your writing and your outlook on the arts? 
I went to New Orleans. I, I studied at Taylor University. My goal was to uh, cure cancer. And so I was going there to study pre-med. And so when I graduated, I had a, um, a degree, a, a bachelor's of science in biology. Um, with regards to um, how it impacted uh, my writing, I, to be honest, had no intention of being a writer. I was not interested in, I mean, I, I'm not going to say I wasn't interested in it. I read a great deal as a child and as a young person, but to actually write well, to be honest, I, I had an experience with a teacher who told me I was a terrible writer. So I, I never thought about being a writer for a long time. But New Orleans was a great city. Well, I would love to hear a bit more about New Orleans because I haven't been there. Oh, my goodness. I came from a very, very, I want to say, disciplined background. And so I got to leave my parents, who were all the way in Philadelphia. Oh, my gosh. But you can only imagine just the idea of Mardi Gras. I mean, if you've never experienced it, um, to experience it for the first time, you know, being home, being away from home, is a, it was just, I was describing like, you would not believe the things that are going on here. I just... <laughs> I've heard stories, but it must have been so inspiring. The colors on the costumes, the music and the dancing... Oh, from the costumes to the floats to Bourbon Street to the parties, the people that came in from all over the world. It is the one place that if you really want to experience fun, you've got to go to, well, things are changing now, but you've got to go to a Mardi Gras in New Orleans. Hopefully one day when the pandemic is cleared, that would be fun. Now, you are the founder of PRA Publishing, which has been around for about 18 years. And prior to this, you were an art dealer. So what was the impetus behind starting your own publishing company? And do those reasons still apply? Wow, Mandy, you've had some great questions. Um, as I said, I started off, I was going to become a physician or a doctor. Uh, I went on and did my graduate studies down at Tulane. And then I came back to Philadelphia because I had gotten accepted to medical school. Now, you know, I'm, I'm there um, studying medicine. I've there, there, there's just a lot of uh, other things going on, family issues, et cetera. And so I ended up coming out of medical school, and this is where New Orleans had left its mark. Uh, I went from all of that science, medicine, health care, and all of that to uh, working with an art gallery uh, in downtown Philadelphia. And from there, I sold, you know, the average classical art with this art gallery. But then I became acquainted with the artists of color there in Philadelphia. I, I was bitten with the bug and I sold art. I had an art gallery in Philadelphia for uh, many years and then married my husband, had a couple of kids. And then uh, we moved here. We started our progression moving south. And where are you now? Uh, right now, I'm in Augusta, Georgia. Yeah. And so I uh, moved here. My, my husband was starting his practice and the writing or literary arts and the publishing company didn't come until I started taking my kids to, I don't know if I'm dating myself, but if kids, if people remember Pokemon and the, and the Pokemon craze, well, my kids were part of that. And uh, I took them to uh, what we used to be, it's not, not book binders. It was an old bookstore that went out of business. Uh, books a million. 
Facebook's a million. And the community relations person there asked me to help her with a poetry project. And uh, I was like, poetry? Uh, hmm. <laughs> I'm going to think about that. And uh, I started working with her on poetry. And then everything kind of converged. Mm. Uh, I was working with a woman who um, had um, done these paintings, but she had some words that went with it. And I ended up uh, publishing, actually, the first book was called Parting the Myth. And it was done by a, a woman who worked at one of the furniture stores and she, she painted on the side. And then I uh, worked with one other lady and then I said, writing, how hard can this be? Because writers seem to struggle more so than artists. And I, so I said, how hard can this be? So I got together with my kids, my, my two young children, and we wrote a book of poems and we titled it View from the Middle of the Road. And so that is how I actually became a writer. I wrote about things that I was experiencing. My children wrote about things that they were experiencing. I merged it by putting a local artist on the cover, and then we were off. Mm -hmm. Lucinda, you've lived in uh, Philadelphia, New Orleans, and now Georgia. While you were living in these different areas, did you notice that there were a lot of opportunities for artists of color? That's a great question. When I was in New Orleans, I was exposed to, I want to say African-American culture. But if, you, if you've lived in, in New Orleans, you know that there are several hues to being a person of color. Um, because of the, the diversity of the Creoles, the mulattoes, the African Americans, there was so much culture there. It was literally exploding from from my perspective. I mean, there were the visual arts, I mean, the jazz, the music, dance. There was just so much. My senses um, <laughs> were, were really overwhelmed and it never left me. It had never occurred to me when I was in Philadelphia growing up to think about the arts the way that I've come to appreciate it now. It wasn't like we had lots of art at the house or anything like that. And so when I went back to Philadelphia and I got started, I did work with some of the finest African-American artists at that time. Uh, Sylvia Walker, Dane Tillman. There were uh, one or two others. And I'm looking at their art here on the wall. Um, Kenneth Gatewood. Uh, I actually represented Betty Biggs who was, um, she did a lot of Afrocentric women watercolors and uh, did quite a bit. Used to sell art at Temple University down at the medical school in the conference area. And, uh, and that's where I opened my gallery. So that's the long version. The short version is I transitioned from no awareness, I think, to immersion, to actually wanting to express and support. And when you first moved to Georgia, did you find that there was a lot of African-American art being represented there? Uh, no. I had come here at running, I had run a successful black arts company. When I came here, I said, yes, I sell black art. I, you know, promote black art. There were some people who said that people would be offended if they came into your home and saw all this black art on your walls. Oh, my gosh. I've been here from at least uh, 20, 20 years. And I went from being a art dealer where I actually sold art and set up and did 
exhibits and and um, marketed it to doing like like being an interior decorator. So it was like, you know, going into people's homes and putting up the, you know, usual flowers or the, you know, truck in the field. <laughs> it was horrible. Oh, but that was here. The coastal areas like uh, Buford and um, Hilton Head, Savannah, the arts were booming. And so I, in North Carolina, but here where I am, this pocket right here in Augusta, it was not, no. That must have been a difficult transition. Yeah, yeah. So let's go back to PRA publishing and what you look for when reading submissions. Now, this is a great question because you bring me full force here to modern times. Um, when we first started PRA publishing, um, I didn't have a lot of people that I could talk to about publishing. Um, just as the visual arts, there weren't that many people around. I wanted to start as a traditional press. Now, a traditional press, which is becoming rarer and rarer these days, is a, uh, a publishing house that actually contracts with the author and uh, does everything from beginning to end. So, so they take the paper manuscript and make it into what you find in bookstores. And they do everything in between. And so um, from everything that I understood, you, you have to get authors to query. And so we would just tell people, yeah, we, you know, we're publishing and you don't need an agent or anything. Just, you know, send us what you have. And Mandy, we, we would get hundreds. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> I was just like, everybody's a writer. Oh, my God. You know, and any publisher will tell you that they, they had to start figuring out a system, you know, a system to receive uh, manuscripts, a system to uh, how do you, how we're going to select? Are we going to just, are we going to take children's books? Are we going to take poetry? And so we established um, the idea that we would start with the hardest thing, of course, poetry. And so we published poetry and uh, I did a couple of fiction uh, novels, but they were from foreign writers. Yeah, yeah. Because for some reason, I, I just wanted to get into translation. So our first couple of uh, novels, one author we worked with is Kendara Blake. She's a best-selling author now. I had people who read the selections that we were looking at to give me feedback on, do you think this would be good? Do you think people would like it? Can you understand it? And then I would start to read. And if I couldn't get through the first 50 pages, I passed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, uh, we, we literally had to go from a system where it was wide open to reading at certain times of the year and then working on the projects and just having people read. And we've had one of your poets on the show, Geza Tretalier. Oh, I adore his poetry. We love Geza because he is one of the few authors slash poets who submitted to us and we, we got a feel for his work, and he is just a delight to work with. He was traveling a lot uh, when we first started uh, working together, but just the consummate professional. Because uh, it isn't, you know, it's, it's tough enough, but when, you, when you're working with someone who, um, if you say, listen, we need to do this, and they do it, you know, it, it's just amazing. Just amazing. Yeah, Gaze's poetry is really special. Now, I'd like to know a little bit about Poetry Matters Project Limited and your part in it. Okay. Um, Poetry Matters Project uh, started 
actually we're going, we're celebrating year 21. And that's what came out of the young woman asking me to work with her uh, from, from Books a Million. We just wanted to come in and, and be involved in the community. So we said we would sponsor the contest. And uh, it started here with um, middle and elementary school age children. And then um, uh, Reese Willis was the community relations person who um, contacted us. It just grew every year. We, we went from just having elementary to middle school. We added uh, high school kids. We added college, adults, and seniors. Like the seniors that we worked with, they have their own group over in Aiken. Um, they, they publish six of their own anthologies, and they put on poetry events every year. We were fortunate enough to have one of them be the first poet laureate of Aiken, uh, Joan McCone. With regard to the um, school-age kids, we had two of the young people who won. We started publishing their books. So a uh, young man, Derek Berry, we published his first novel, Heathens and Liars. And the, the young lady, her name is uh, Kendall Driscoll. We published her book, of, her first book of poetry. So both of them are now graduated from college. And um, Derek's doing a lot of great things in South Carolina Kendall was just super talented, so she can do anything she wants. Paint, <laughs> play the flute, you know, teach. <laughs> just so, so talented. But we, we've seen it grow. At the recent inauguration, we were treated to hearing poet Amanda Gorman read The Hill We Climb. And it had me thinking about the role literature and poetry plays in human rights and social justice. What are your thoughts on this? It's a great question. Um, having done this for so long, um, and, and you mentioned Geza, who actually his area of concern or social social issue is climate change. What we find is that unlike uh, doing a novel, when you work with young people and you're dealing with poetry, they, they automatically think it should rhyme. But when you start to work with them and you tell them that th- you can put down your thoughts any way you want to, just just write them down, and then we'll tweak it. You know, we'll we'll edit and and you know take out all the extra words. But the power in what you have written multiplies when you share it. So that's what we tell each age group. You know, it's one thing because a person can sit and read what you have written, and they can have all kinds of interpretations of what what you could have meant. But it is only when you read it and share it and they hear it in your voice and and you know you get to explain you know before or after you've shared it what you were thinking that is the power it's funny as you ask me that i'm working with some fourth graders right now who are writing poems about a trail that they built at their school and uh i had i went around the room and said okay you've been out there tell me about the trail all of them said the same thing pretty much. Okay, trees, you know, trees. Oh, yeah, trees. Okay, I'm going to say something different, a bench. But then when, I, when we started talking about there's a, there's a sensory component. If you write for the people who may never come to this trail, what would you say to them? If you think about what comes to mind with regard to your sense, your sense of smell, touch, taste, Oh my God, Mandy, 
the difference in what they wrote and the thoughts that they shared after that one exercise. I think that poetry should be, people should be less afraid of it. I think people think that it has to rhyme and, you know, if they just realize it's a form of expression, just do it and share it. And break some rules, mix up that poetry with prose. And I do believe in the power of the arts to make social change. Yeah, I probably went long on the on the young people's story, but there's two things that have come out of what we're doing. Last year, we had a chance to work with Kim McMillan and several of the poets out on the West Coast in a project called Wake Up America. And you can go online and see, because um, Gaza participated, we had East Coast, West Coast, Northeast poets from all over who got to read and share uh, their poems regarding social justice. And it went from just being a, a few readings for April to a session in July to another session on uh, Afrofuturism um, towards the end of last year. With regards to some of the other young people who have won last year, we had um, the uh, Youth Poet Laureate for Nashville win first place in our contest. And we're going to do a reading with her, another young lady by the name of uh, Sophia Falco, who is now publishing books on mental health. She was having a really tough time and poetry, she said, saved her life. And so uh, we're going to have her and uh, another young lady by the name of Meha Suit. She was submitting to the contest, and because we judge it blind, we only focus on the winners. But she is now, if you Google her name, she is winning all kinds of prizes. She's everywhere. And uh, they started a project called Life in Quarantine. It features authors, uh, writers, uh, poets painters, artists, we all participated in that, and it's just beautiful. The the beauty of poetry is that while we don't think it's big where we are, it is huge around the world. It is the way we can connect globally. And Lucinda, do you have a poem you'd like to share with us, one of yours? I have a poem here that I like to read since we're talking about social change, those types of things. This poem is titled Blazing. To blaze a trail, one must recognize at the onset that is what she is doing. For it summons the positive forces born of confidence instead of the negative forces born of arrogance. If one chooses to become a trailblazer, she must be aware so that she can prepare for the wake that trailblazing inevitably causes. Lost innocence, removal from the comfortable world she now knows. Change, or her life will never be the same. What are the final results if one chooses to blaze a trail? A pile of ashes of what once was, blowing forcefully in the wind. Replaced by something new, unexpected, different. Combined with the old trail, a new trail blazed now makes a fork in the road. Mm. 
Thank you so much for that. And you're right, it was absolutely perfect for the topic we were just discussing. Thank you. Lucinda, I have one final question. What is one book you'd like to see more people reading? I would say Cast by Isabella Wilkerson. There's something in it for everyone. We've gone through turbulent time with regards to culture, race. There are so many things coming out about class. I mean, this this whole pandemic can be viewed totally differently depending on your socioeconomic status, what part of the country you live in, and what you were doing before COVID struck. We're all having the same COVID pandemic experience, but it is so different. It is so different for, for all of us. And I think that Isabella Wilkerson's book, it takes a global look at inequity and equality. It puts it in a way that I think that the average person or great thinker will come away with a different point of view after they share it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's excellent. The one thing that, because I'm, I am a woman of color, I don't like to say I'm a black woman. People shouldn't say, hey, there's a black person. It's a person of color. There are no white people either. There are, you know, you come from a line of heritage. And I think that we're shortcutting ourselves by keeping it simple. And yeah, the book will help with that. Lucinda, thank you so much for joining me today. And I adored listening to your poem. Thank you. Thank you, Mandy, for giving me the opportunity. I really enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Make sure to follow me on Instagram and Facebook at The Bookshop Podcast to learn more about upcoming speaking engagements, my books, and my Art of Observing workshops. Go to my website at mandyjacksonbeverly.com. You can sign up for my newsletter or contact me directly at mandy at cricketpublishing.org and follow me on social media at Mandy Jackson Beverly. Read global, buy local, support your local indie bookshop. <laughs>